You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 22. The Diamond Bell. From the Journal of Frank Butler, Memphis, Tennessee, July 3rd, 1883. Jeremy Pines and I lay luxuriating in two copper bathtubs within the semi-palatial upstairs spa of the Memphis safe house. I was already missing Annie, who would have lit up like a Christmas tree over the opportunity to pamper herself the way we were doing. But I suspected Jeremy was missing Donald a whole lot more for their many months apart. As such, I let Jeremy do what Jeremy does, namely talking my ear off about what fascinates him. It was when he touched on the subject of a unicorn in Iowa that I took notice. And how many people from the town saw it? I asked, bodily sitting up amid the soap bubbles. Just one family of six, he replied. They were on a picnic near Des Moines, and it came right up to their checkered blanket. It was black as night with a white mane, and it demanded a sandwich. You're fooling me. Swear to Yahweh. At least that was what was in the cartographer's report. Did they give it a sandwich? Him. It was definitely a him. And yes, they gave him what they had. Roast beef, apparently. He asked for lemonade, then complained it was too sour and cursed. He cursed them? No, cursed at them. Called them a bunch of wankers. What's that supposed to mean? The cartographer figured that was a unicorn word, but Donald uses it quite often. It means... Obstinate idiots. Then what happened? The unicorn made them scrape the gooseberries off their cheesecake, then he took it, disparaged the man's taste in shoes, and walked back into the forest. Nobody ever saw him again. Jeremy, I have been grossly misinformed about unicorns. That was actually the first report we ever got that didn't just concern the Wendigo. That's why our department changed its name from the DMP. We realized we were dealing with a lot more than we could quantify with our previously established facts. I sat back in the tub and marveled at the idea of this strange beast. Such a corruption of the purity I had always associated with those noble animals. I kind of wanted to meet this one even more. Now that Jeremy had given me food for thought, I figured I'd repay him with my experience of a town where no person was permitted to look another in the eye. Less than a minute into my story, he had grabbed a notebook and was scribbling away furiously with wet hands. It was relaxation of a kind for him. He recharged by doing what he loved. From the Journal of Annie Oakley, Memphis, Tennessee, July 3rd, 1883. We experienced a markedly different atmosphere from Jefferson City and Indianapolis here. Circulation of the second printing of the handbook had not yet reached Memphis, and there was no army presence. Certainly nobody besides Agent Wolf for us to check in with, or resupply. There was a single telegraph station at the outskirts, and a few information gatherers who had pieced together the presence and location of the wind door. Apparently some local kid had walked through it in early March, and and never came back out. There was also a lot of talk of some monstrous, dark lion in the forest, 
We're used to superstition, and most of these claims never seem to turn up any tangible evidence. But four months ago, to the day, I was in Ohio, witnessing the devastating attack of a real, live manticore. That it targeted the vice president, and that it was sent by Seth, means that this particular description has me very much on edge. Hunting parties were going out every few evenings to track this beast to its lair. But, having done precisely this myself, and ended up at Seth's mercy, I'm not confident of their chances. The simple act of communicating with him, something I usually do extremely well, left me in the position of absolute mental and emotional vulnerability. He can get inside your head and unravel your preconceived sensibilities. Short of it is, I am not looking forward to meeting him again. And we are steering well clear of the northern woods. This all left me feeling particularly nervous about our approach tomorrow. And Abigail was doing her level best to compound that nervousness. She stalked through the muddy Memphis streets, following the tire trail Steamheart had left. Where are we headed? I'm taking y'all on a research trip. Raven's piercing eyes scanned over the architecture and the demeanor of the city folk around us, mentally logging the details. This research trip you speak of, will there still be drinks? Oh, yes. I saw Harry was getting noticed more often. This had been happening the further south we traveled. The number of dark-skinned faces we encountered were thinning out, and those we did see kept their heads low and eyes off the white people around them, as though their presence was tolerated, provided they didn't get any ideas. Ugh. So Sparks, wandering around, head high, a dreamy look on her face, fascinated by what she was seeing, was just adding to my anxiety. We pitched up at a goddamned whorehouse, and I stood incredulous, speechless, and fuming as Abigail marched up the steps and through the swinging doors, followed by Raven. Harry loitered with me. Uh, what is this place? She asked. It's somewhere you go to barter in exchange for intercourse. Oh, we going in then? Looks like it. After you. And we followed them. Gray reached into her bag and slapped down a small gold ingot at the bar. Hey, compadre, what kind of line of credit do I get for this? The bartender inspected it. Who are you people? Just some tired travelers looking to kick back a little and rest. Well, for this, you get whatever you want. We'll have that booth across there, then. And send a waitress over. You serve food here? Best in Memphis. Well, didn't we just strike it lucky tonight? With that, she stalked to the booth and threw herself in. The rest of us followed. There was a strange new kind of music playing. Piano, strings, and smoky trumpets. Not the sort I would have expected to hear in a disreputable place like this. Night had fallen, and the joint was filling up. Around us stood men with furtive looks. 
most of them limping about between the girls like they had been shot in the toe, poorly concealing their arousal. People with guns on their belts eyed us from across the room, and I made sure to face the entrance, planning an emergency escape in case of attack. A young lady with lace gloves and a mint green dress arrived and beamed at all of us. What do you have tonight? What's your name? Florence. Well, Florence, we are going to have everything you can offer us. And since this is Tennessee, we're going to start with a bottle of whiskey and four glasses. Gotcha. Coming right up. And Florence. Yes, ma'am. Which ladies here specialize in servicing other ladies? Would you like a selection? I can arrange a meeting in a back room. We got some fellas, too. Some of those would be peachy. Yes, ma'am. Give me ten minutes on that. I'll be back with your whiskey in half a moment. Thank you, Florence. You're a sweetheart. The girl made her exit as I hissed at Abigail. What the hell are you doing? I think the general term is an orgy, but I've also heard clusterfuck. I'm disinterested in semantics tonight. Who else is game? Hell, since we're buying, I'll take one of the ladies to her room. Sure thing, Raven, you old fox. Gray, what's the matter? I saw you talking about this place with James as we passed it earlier. You seemed real angry. What's it to you? It's my mother's former place of employment. Oh. Yeah, I'm just coming to check the place out. Do you have to sample the merchandise? I'm thoroughly checking it out. Florence returned and presented the whiskey. Abigail and Raven immediately downed two shots each. Harry sniffed hers and drained the glass gasping in shock as it burned all the way down. Oh, I can feel it in my toes. Don't get drunk, Sparks. We need you to drive tomorrow. Abigail, we need you sober, too. Relax, Captain. I'm just going to have a few more, then I'm going to go have a little fun upstairs. Harry, you want me to retain your fella? No, but I'll have another whiskey. That ingot you were given was for emergency. It's an emergency. It's not. I can see you're upset. Upset? Is that what I am, Captain? It certainly seems... I paid this establishment a chunk of government money. That means I own their ass for the night. Isn't that right? Okay. Step outside. Nah. I want to talk to you in private. Talk to me here. Fine. I can see that this means something to you, and while you're going about it in a self-destructive manner, I want to help you. So why don't you ease up on the whiskey, order a coffee, and I'll come with you to the back room. She blinked in surprise at my words. You can then pick out however many ladies and gentlemen you need to scratch this itch of yours, and I'll accompany you to whatever bedroom they organize. I have to be there, Abigail. It's my job. I'm protecting you. I sat back inclusively. Then, when you're all done, we can rejoin these two and leave. And you can pick over how you feel about this place from a safe distance. We sat in a stunned silence. Florence approached our table once more. They're all ready, she announced politely. Nobody moved. Then Raven stood. Well, looks like I'm going first. Florence led him away. 
Abigail was staring at her full glass. Well, what do you say, Gray? I asked gently. She did not reply. You know, mused Harry, taking a tiny sip of her second glass. I really like these dresses. Abigail furrowed her brow at this. I thought you hated dresses like I do. You said they weren't practical. The dress that I wore wasn't practical on me, Harry corrected. But these ladies are wearing dresses that ride up in the middle. That means they can see their feet when they walk. And they can get them hitched up when they get down to business. She's not wrong, I remarked. Those are some very pretty dresses. Sensible entirely for their purpose. The ladies sashayed around the hall. And across the balconied upper floors, swathed in silks and lace. Every time they turned, we caught flashes of color and hidden secrets in what they wore. Florence came back our way. Your friend has gone up to one of our rooms with Ruby. The others are waiting, whenever you're ready. Um, Florence, tell them thank you. But for now, they can go about their evenings. We'll have some coffee, though, and a basket of whatever cured meats you've got going here tonight. Some hard-boiled eggs and cornbread? As you wish, ma'am, said Florence. Seemingly a little disappointed. Do tell me if you've changed your mind, though. One more thing, said Abigail. Then in a more hushed, conspiratorial voice. You ever hear of a man worked here named William Fisher? Not that I recall. Maybe someone else of that surname? He was in charge of the whole place. How long ago are we talking? Um, 25 years or so. 1858. Florence looked around the room and shrugged. You know, ma'am, I don't think there's a person who has worked here that long. I'll ask Madame Hilda, though. She's our veteran. Thank you, Florence. I'll be back with your food. And she was gone once more. We sat like that in the Diamond Bell until eleven. Raven returned eventually, but Abigail did not journey out into the back room. Instead, she engaged in a lively conversation with Harry for most of the evening. So, I did not press her on her change of heart. Madame Hilda arrived, a lady in her fifties with a potent dignity about her. We learned that William Fisher had been before her time, but his son, Maurice, had run this place for five years after William's murder, before fleeing from his accumulated enemies. She told us, after learning Abigail's hatred for the father, that the son was a fiend, and not someone anybody here expected to see return. I knew the name full well. Butler had told me in chilling detail about Thomas's dealings with a Maurice Fisher in March, but I held my tongue on confirming his identity for the time being. Even when Abigail cited that two-bit, know-nothing politician associate of his, Dutch Van Tassel. The last thing I needed was Abigail, desperate to return to Washington, to settle a score with someone who was now a powerful gangster. I hoped, instead, that this news that 
Fisher Sr. was all but forgotten in this place, might give the girl some measure of peace. On balance, it was not the worst secret I was keeping from her. You have been listening to episode 22 of Steamheart, The Diamond Bell, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harriet Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Raven and Bartender, performed by Alex Shaw. And Florence, performed by Theo Lee. Where the West Begins, composed by Ferenc Hegedus of Shockwave Sound. Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsorship credit every episode, so a thank you to Abel Savard, Aaron Lecluse, Benjamin Biddle, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Dan Mayer, Dave Hickman, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Otero, Lorraine Chisholm, Luke Hatfield, Mark Lush, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Nick Ord, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, and Tom Painter. Oakley did not know, of course, that Francis Fisher had been brutally murdered in front of his gang almost two months previously by Mr. White. White considered having the carcass hung by its entrails from the flagpole outside his fishery, but decided that this would be overdoing it and distasteful. Word was already spreading of the trauma and public agony of the man's messy execution so instead, only Francis's severed, carefully mummified forearm was mounted to the wall, directing his former employees to their place of work. <laughs>